Y'all turn with me to Luke 19. Luke 19, verse 28. We're starting a new series today. We're talking about the last eight days before Easter, including Easter. Uh, if you read the Gospels, the four accounts in Scripture about the life of Jesus, you'll find that they're not like other biographies of great people. You know, most biographies try to cover every aspect of a person's life. They don't leave any stone unturned. With Jesus, there are lots of stones that are unturned. There's lots of things we, know, we don't know about the life of Jesus. And we'll just have to wait till heaven to get there. Do you know that only two out of the four Gospels even mention his birth? You know, uh, uh, John and Mark don't even talk about how he was born or where he was born. There's only one story we have from his childhood, and that happened when he was 12. That's virtually all we know between his birth and the time he turned 30, around the, around the age of 30. I mean, there's, there's a huge gap there in information. And then once he was around 30 and he began his public ministry, we know that uh, he, he walked for, 30, for three years or so, and he did miracles, and he taught amazing things the world had never seen. But the gospel writers are very upfront in saying that they're giving us only a fraction of the things that Jesus actually did and said. There's a lot more, and this is a tantalizing thought, isn't it? There's a lot more that Jesus did and said that they didn't have room to write down. We'll just have to wait till we get to heaven to find out about it. But when it comes to those last eight days, everything slows way down for the gospel writers. And that, that period of time takes up from a quarter to a third, depending on the gospel you're looking at, of the, of the print in the gospel stories. So something happened in those eight days that they considered more important than everything else. To them, those were the most important days, the most important week and change in the history of humanity. And that's where our salvation comes from. And if you want to know Jesus and you want to know who, who he was and what he was about, you study those eight days. And if you want to know who God was, you study Jesus. So I'm, my hope is that as we talk about this from now until Easter Sunday, which is not so far away, as we talk about this between now and then, my hope and my prayer is that we'll come to know him better, that we'll all get to love him more, and most of all, that we will feel led to invite somebody to this place who's going to hear the gospel story for the first time or maybe hear it in a fresh way. It may be somebody that was raised in church but somehow got away from church thinking that it's all about rules and all about Sunday rituals and didn't realize that it's about a man named Jesus who came and died for their sins and rose again the third day. So let's start. We're going to start with verse 28 of chapter 19. We're starting with what we call Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. And we're going to read it and then we'll talk about it. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell them the Lord needs it. Time out, by the way. Don't try this at home, okay? You know, don't, don't send someone to take someone's horse and say, hey, tell them I need it. It's just, it won't work out for you. Riding an unridden colt probably isn't a good idea either, but he's Jesus and you're not. So verse 20, whatever number that is, um, print gets smaller as I get older for some reason. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. 
I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and, your, and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. I think it's interesting to look back at history and look at all the times when we as human beings thought we had it all figured out, thought we knew exactly what was going on and what was going to happen and turned out to be absolutely, totally incorrect. Kind of a humorous example, some of us can remember, if you're older than a millennial, you can remember Y2K. And if you're a millennial or younger, Y2K stands for year 2000. See, back then in the late 90s, it was believed that because computers were programmed with the year kept in two digits instead of four, that when it turned 2000, and that clock rolled from 99 to, zero, to double zero that computers would freak out and collapse and shut down. And since everything's run by computers, that would mean that as soon as the clock struck midnight on December 31st, 1999, that all of a sudden everything would just shut down. The, the financial markets would collapse and, and utilities would quit working and there'd be rioting in the streets and people going nuts and dogs and cats living together in mass chaos, Right. And I remember being a little anxious about it myself. My dad was a computer programmer. I remember asking him, so y'all are fixing this, right? And he's like, hey, we can't fix it. Nobody can reprogram every computer. He didn't seem worried, but that didn't help me any. I actually knew a family, and this is not my family, but I knew a family back where I'm from who actually went out and bought a dairy cow because they thought they were going to have to source their own milk once uh, 2000 got here. And, you know, we look back and we laugh at that now because as we were sitting there in our homes on December 31st, 1999, some of you remember this, even those of us that usually, you know, went to sleep early on that night, we stayed up because we wanted to see what was going to happen. And they're, they're counting down, five, four, three, two, one, and midnight hits, and nothing happened. The ball dropped in Times Square, and we kissed our respective spouses and sweethearts and went to bed, realizing, you know, we got all worked up for nothing. But contrast that to two years later, when nobody thought anything big was going to happen in September 2001, no one knew that the world was about to change forever until that second plane hit the Twin Towers. We don't know what's going on. Think about it like this. I mean, when you were a teenager, some of you are still teenagers, but when you were a teenager, you thought you knew more than your parents. I don't care how old you are. If you look back, you thought you knew more than your parents when you were a teenager. And so when your mom or dad said something like, you know, nothing good happens after midnight, so you need to be home before midnight, you just kind of laughed and said, oh, mom and dad, it may have been that way when you were a kid, but it's not that way anymore. And then you get to be their age and you have kids of your own and you're like, you know what I found out? Nothing good happens after midnight. It makes you wonder, what is it that I'm wrong about now? What is it that I think I've got all figured out where I know the answers, where if God would just consult with me, I'd fix it all, and it turns out I don't know anything. I say that because on the day we call Palm Sunday, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. He'd been on his way for a long time. You know, Jesus was a slow traveler. He didn't make a beeline for wherever he was going. He was the kind of guy who would stop here and there. He'd see someone who needed healing. 
He'd see a crowd that needed to hear a message from him. He'd stop off in Jericho to have lunch with some stumpy little tax collector named Zacchaeus. But on Palm Sunday, he was on his way up the Mount of Olives. And there were, these, there were all these groups all throughout Jerusalem who really thought they knew what was going on, who had it all figured out. Right there in the Jerusalem, there were Romans, Roman soldiers, centurions, officials. They knew exactly what the world was all about. Rome ruled the world from Gibraltar to Jerusalem, and they had for centuries. And if you asked any Roman in that city, they would have told you, yeah, this is the way it'll always be. In fact, we're probably going to gain more ground. Once we discover new territory, we'll, we'll conquer that too. And sure, there were always barbarian hordes out there who needed quelling and some little rogue uh, zealot or, or revolutionary out there who would, who would stand up and cause a little skirmish, but the legions would swoop down and destroy them and everything would go back to the way it was and the Pax Romana was law and it always would be. And the people of, of Jerusalem who were religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they thought they knew what was going on in the world. To them, the, the whole thing came down to the temple. The temple in Jerusalem, right up there on the Temple Mount, if we, ke if we keep that temple alive, if we take care of that temple, that's where God dwells. That's where we go to connect with Him. As long as we take care of that temple, we're good. So the key for them was we've got to be good to the Romans. We don't like them. We don't think they should be here, but you know, right now they have the power over us, so we've got to keep them happy so they don't come destroy our temple and take away our country. And someday the Messiah is going to come and he's going to wipe out the Romans and everything will be good. Until then, we just have to bide our time. And that's why this, this teacher from Galilee, this Jesus from Nazareth, worried them so much because, number one, he hung out with, with prostitutes and tax collectors and other sinful people and he flaunted their rules and he, he mocked their authority and he undermine the people's confidence in them. And, and besides that, he was stirring people up. People were calling him Messiah. And, you know, if you say that thing often enough, then the Romans are going to come in and they're going to take away our stuff. So something has to be done about this Jesus. If you ask the average religious leader in Jerusalem, they would have said, the number one problem we've got is this guy Jesus, and we've got to handle him. We've got to silence him somehow. I don't know what to do because the crowds love him. We can't kill him out in the open. We'll be in trouble, but we've got to do something. And then there were the disciples. They thought they knew what was going on. To them, they'd been following Jesus for three years, him and, and hundreds of other people, men and women. They'd given up everything to follow him because they knew he's the Messiah that God's been promising. And one of these days, and maybe it's this week because here he is coming into Jerusalem right at Passover time, he's going to declare himself. He hasn't been open about it. We've been talking to him behind the scenes. We've been speculating. And when Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, he said, good job, Peter. Now keep it to yourself. But I think soon he's going to announce it. And when he announces it, boy, that's, that's the beginning of the new world. There's going to be, there's going to be a, a new sheriff in town, and, and the Romans are going to bow to us. And, and we're going to have, once again, a golden age in Israel, like when David and Solomon sat on the throne. And, and the nations will come to, to seek our wisdom and to pay tribute to us, and, and we'll be the ones in the ground, on the ground floor of it. We'll be administrating the most powerful, most important country that ever existed, and, and it'll be worth all this sacrifice we've made and all the humiliations of our people down through the centuries. And all these people had these expectations swirling about them in this crucial week as Jesus and his disciples came up to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is a, a, a steep hill. It's not really a mountain, but it's a very steep hill 
two miles from Jerusalem. And I was there three years ago. I got to go to Israel, and I took a picture with my cell phone of the view from the top of the Mount of Olives. And there you go. Not bad for a cell phone. You see up there the walls of Jerusalem and that golden dome right there. That's, I'll tell you what that is in a little bit, but that's where the, the temple actually sat, roughly where the temple was. So imagine you're an Israelite in the first century and you're traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover. Maybe you've never been. Maybe you've only been a couple of times. It's definitely not something you can afford to do every year. But you've, you've traveled a long way. You're walking through Judea, which is desolate country. If you're from Galilee, which is lush and green, it's a real transformation, a real change for you. And, you, and you've traveled through this arid land, and you go up on this hill, and you mount the top of that hill. You crest that hill, and you see the site up before you. And immediately your, your chest swells with pride and you're so glad that you're a Jew and you're so glad you're one of the chosen people. And you look at that temple and you look at those walls and you think, we will always be safe because God has us safe inside his walls, inside his temple. And right about then, when they saw this view, Jesus spoke up and he said, hey, go into the nearby village and get that colt for me. They know, they know who I am. It's gonna be okay. And Jesus gets on that donkey's colt and as he mounts that horse, that, that, that animal, that donkey, everybody goes nuts. They start laying their cloaks in front of him like he's a king. And children start waving palm branches, which is a sign of victory in that culture. And the, the disciples around them start chanting things like, Hosanna, it's not in Luke, but it's in the other gospels. Hosanna, which is a Hebrew word that means, save us, Lord, save us. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and peace be upon Jerusalem and all these things that are from the Psalms that are messianic words. And the, the pilgrims, there were pilgrims all through the roads leading up to Jerusalem and they caught on and they started chanting too. And then as they neared Jerusalem and people inside the walls of Jerusalem could hear this uproar, they came running out and they began chanting as well and singing because they knew what this meant. And the religious leaders must have been thinking, wait a second, what's going on here? This is not what we wanted from Jesus. In fact, we hear from them, teacher, silence your disciples. They didn't want an uproar. They didn't want to do anything to scare the Romans. The Romans, the soldiers who were standing at the gates, we don't know this, but I imagine they were thinking to themselves, what's about to happen? They were probably putting a hand on the hilt of their swords thinking, here we go. I don't know what this is all about. I don't even know what Hosanna means, but I better be ready. So what was going on? See, this was a symbolic action by Jesus. None of this was spontaneous or random. All of it was carefully choreographed by him to send a specific message. We know something about symbolic actions in our day and age. When I baptized Nathan a little earlier, I hope you all understand, that was entirely symbolic. There's nothing magic about that water. I wasn't washing his sins away. I would have plunged and scrubbed a little while if that was the case. But no, his sins are already washed away by Jesus long ago when he accepted Christ at the age of six. Now, that's a symbol of what was going on, what happened in his heart. We know about symbolic action even outside of the religious realm. If you're out in, a, out in public and you see a young man kneel down on one knee in front of a young woman, you know what's about to happen, don't you? You may not even be able to hear their words, but you know what he's doing. He's not checking her for stray nose hairs, right? In the Scriptures, we see the prophets of God often doing symbolic things. They, they, spoke, they spoke truths from God, but they also did things that were very memorable. Jeremiah, for instance, walked around with, a, with an ox's yoke around his shoulders. 
to show the Israelites that someday you're going to be enslaved. Hosea married a woman who he knew would be unfaithful to him, and she was because he wanted to symbolize to the people of Israel, this is how we make God feel when we chase after other gods. Isaiah, this is a true story, actually went around for three years naked and barefoot. Three years. I hope it was warm. Three years because he wanted to symbolize the humiliation that Israel would experience because of their sin. Jesus gets on this donkey, and the the message he is sending is crystal clear to everyone watching, every Jew at least who's watching. He's saying two things. He's saying, number one, I am the Messiah. And number two, I'm not the kind of Messiah you expected. So let's talk about those real quick, and then we'll move on with the story. I'm not, I am the Messiah, he says. And this comes from Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9, this is an ancient prophecy, hundreds of years before Jesus. Prophet Zechariah wrote these words down. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus, again, had been very quiet about his Messiahship. He hadn't let his disciples spread the word. He was very, very careful not to accumulate a large crowd. There are a couple of times in the Gospels where his crowd got too large, and he'd get up and he'd say something really harsh, and most of them would go away. Another time, a group tried to make him king by force. He got on a boat and sailed away to get away from them. He was not interested in an earthly kingdom, not at that point. He had another more important mission. But now, for the very first time, he gets on this colt of a donkey. He's fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. And everybody there, every Jew in that place, knew that verse. And they knew when he climbed onto that donkey's colt what he was saying. He was saying, I'm him. I'm the Messiah. Believe it or not. Follow me or not. I'm him. But he was also saying, I'm not the kind of Messiah you expected. See, in the Roman world, when a commander wanted to tout his glory... If he'd won a battle overseas or in some other country and he came back into town, they would throw him a triumph. They called it a triumph, what we we would call a victory parade, like when we throw a parade for for the World Series champions or the Super Bowl champions, not that we in Houston would know about that, but that's what they do. Not that I'm bitter. Um... But in the Roman world, it, it was very, very carefully choreographed. The, the commander would, would ride in a chariot pulled by four white stallions. He'd be wearing a toga that was accented with pure gold. It was something he'd only wear one time. It was, it was a ceremonial garment. Um, he would be followed by his legions marching in all their finery, their gleaming armor and their swords. And then following them would be the spoils of war and the captives, the people who had given up, the enemy who was conquered. They'd come dragging in last. And the people of Rome would line the streets and they'd cheer and they would throw flowers before them. And it would be just the beginning of this great, great time of of feasting and gladiatorial games and entertainment and, and rejoicing. And it cost an incredible amount of money. The Senate had to approve a triumph. So if you were a commander of an army and you won any kind of battle and you wanted to make yourself look good, you would literally send a message to the Senate, say, hey, would you please throw me a triumph? Now compare that to Jesus. Jesus wasn't in a chariot pulled by four horses. He was sitting on the colt of a donkey. You ever seen the difference between a donkey and a horse? One is much more majestic than the other, in case you haven't noticed. He he didn't even have a saddle of his own. He He had to sit on the garments of his own disciples. And yeah, the pilgrims cheered him, but did they even know what they were really saying? 
There were no games. There were no entertainments. There was no feasting. This was an entirely different event. Jesus was saying, I'm, I'm, I'm something new. I'm not the Messiah you expected. I am coming. I am coming in humility. I am coming not to destroy your enemies. I'm coming to die for your enemies. We call this the triumphal entry, but Jesus didn't act triumphant at all. In fact, the closer he got to Jerusalem, the more he began to weep. This is one of only two times. The Bible tells us Jesus wept. There were probably more times, but this is the second. The first was at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. There's your Bible trivia for the day. Jesus is weeping as he's headed towards the city. Everyone else is cheering. They don't even seem to notice. They're just excited that he's declared his Messiahship finally. And he begins to speak prophetically. You know, the thing about prophets, they were always the only people on earth that really did know what was going on. We all think we know what's going on, but the prophets had a direct line to the Lord. And what they said was true. Jesus begins to speak like a prophet. He says, I wish this city, I wish this city would have listened to all the prophets God has sent. I wish this city would have listened to me. I love this city, but it's going to be destroyed. Someday soon, armies will encamp around it. Someday soon, they'll erect siege ramps. Someday soon, they'll starve out the people, and then, then they'll destroy it, and not one stone will be left on another. Now, why would he say these things? I mean, this is going to happen some in, sometime in the future. What is, he, what is he doing? What Jesus is doing is the same thing a parent does when he sees his child going off, uh, uh, going off the tracks. He says, you need to straighten up or you're going to get into real trouble. Same thing a teacher does when he sits down with his student and says, if you don't actually start studying, you're not going to pass this class. Same thing a doctor does when she talks to her patient and says, if you don't change your lifestyle, you're not going to live to see grandchildren. What Jesus was doing was the same thing every prophet has ever done. He was, he was pursuing repentance on the part of his audience. He was saying, you still have time. Yes, this is what God has planned for Jerusalem. But just like Nineveh, when Jonah went around the city 40 days and 40 nights declaring judgment, Nineveh repented and, and God changed his mind. God can change your destiny too. Repent. Come back to him. I'm right here. And you've got a chance, one chance to get right. And even if the entire city won't, each of you individually, you can come back to me. You can follow me and be saved. You know, you fast forward 35 years and everything Jesus said came true. It started around 66 AD when a, a band of Jewish zealots invaded the previously impregnable fortress known as Masada, high up on a, on a mountainside. They snuck up in there and killed every Roman soldier in that garrison, occupied it for three years. The Romans heard very quickly. They sent their legions south, and they marched through Israel, conquering everything they saw. First Galilee, and then most of Judea, and then they encircled Jerusalem. They built siege ramps up to, up to those walls, and they didn't let anybody out, didn't let anything get in. It wasn't long before supplies started to dwindle. After six months, even, even the wife of the high priest, a woman who dressed in finery and held herself above the people and lived in luxury, was seen scrounging for scraps in the streets like everybody else. And then the wall was breached, and the soldiers poured in, and the defenders of Jerusalem retreated to the temple thinking, oh, we'll make our stand here because God won't let anybody get into the temple. He'll stand up for us now. 
God was silent. He'd already given his verdict. And the Roman commander, a man named Titus, he said later that he really wanted to be merciful. He wanted to leave the temple untouched, and he wanted to, to, to spare the civilian population. But the, the men he commanded were so frustrated after all those months of siege and after the intransigence and stubbornness of the Jews, he lost control of them, and they killed thousands, men, women, and children, destroyed the temple. The only thing that was left was one of the outer walls. We know it now as the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. And there was not another Jewish nation again until 1948. From 70 AD to 1948, there was no, no national home for the Jews. A few decades later, the Romans built a temple to Zeus on the Temple Mount where the temple of God had once stood. A couple of centuries later, when, when the Muslims took the city of Jerusalem, they destroyed that temple and built the Dome of the Rock, that's that golden dome we saw earlier in the picture. And the mosque, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, right out in front. I'm going to talk some more about that next week. But think about this. That's what Jesus said would happen. And it happened. He gave them a chance and they didn't take it. What does all this have to do with us, though? Most of us in this room aren't Jewish. We would say it's interesting history, but is it relevant? Yeah, it's relevant. Let me tell you how. Because we often think we know what's going on. And we like to pretend we can tell God what to do. And we'll sit there and say, okay, Lord, um, can you do something about the terrorists? Can you do something about ISIS? Can you fix Syria for us? Can you stop Russia and stop China and stop North Korea from, from, from whatever they're planning to do that we know is not going to be good? Can you, Lord, can you, can you raise the price of oil? That would be good. Can you fix our economy? Can you, can you turn around the, the moral decline of our nation? We're waiting for you to act, Lord. That's what we need you to do. How about this person that was so cruel to me? Why don't you punish them, Lord? They seem to be doing better than I am. Why don't you take care of them? How about this person that I care about whose, whose life has gone down the tubes? Why don't you straighten them out, Lord? Why don't you put them back on the right track? How about me? How come you haven't healed my illness? How come you haven't given me a better job? How come you haven't given me a job at all? Why am I still unmarried? I'm looking for the right person and he or she just hasn't come. Or why am I still married to this person I married originally? And how come you haven't changed them? We think we know exactly what's going on. We really like to tell God what to do. And I'm not saying we shouldn't pray and bring our requests before the Lord. He's commanded us to do that. But we really do think that we know what's right. And when God doesn't act the way we want Him to, we think we've been betrayed or that He's not doing His job. And I'm saying to you that only Jesus knew on Palm Sunday what was really going on. And it could be, in fact, it probably is true, that only He knows what's really going on in your world right now. And that all the things you think are true maybe aren't quite as true as you think they are. And that maybe when you come to Him in prayer and you lay out your petitions before Him, you should do it, we should do it with a little more humility and say, okay, Lord, here's what I really think, what I really think I need, but I, I just, I understand you know better than I do. And if you give me what I'm asking for, I will praise your name. If you do something different, I'm going to praise your name just as much because you know what you're doing. And so my challenge for you this week, just to try something different, whatever else you pray about, my challenge for you is to say, Lord, I trust in you. I trust that you know what you're doing, so show me what to do. 
Instead of me focusing my prayer life on how I can get you to do what I want, I want to just offer myself to do what you want. Lord, show me what you want me to do. This is in your at first guide. Take it home, put it on your refrigerator or in your Bible or however it can remind you. But I want us to just have a week where, and maybe it'll start a new pattern of life, where we just offer ourselves up to God's service and we start looking for opportunities to glorify him. And I'll tell you a story. John, John Ortberg tells this story about a guy named Doug Coe. And I just found out Doug Coe passed away this last week. Somebody in the first service told me this. Doug Coe, for many, many years, worked in a ministry in Washington, D.C. He mentored and led Bible studies with politicians from both parties, um, with businessmen and other people in that city in our nation's capital. And Doug Coe told the story of a guy named Bob who he met, a, a businessman, not a politician. And Bob believed in God, but he just didn't believe that God was still active in the world today. And he'd say to Doug, listen, how can you look at the world and think that God's actually involved? And Doug said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll make a deal with you. You pick a nation, any nation on earth, and you pray for that nation for a month, and you just ask God to show you what he's doing in that nation. And if after a month you don't see that God is active in that nation, then I'll pay you $500 of my own money. So Bob took the deal. He chose, just sort of at random, he chose the nation of Uganda. It's no place he'd ever been, didn't know anybody there. He just thought, well, okay, that's, that's a nation that probably needs God's help. So he began to pray for Uganda day after day. And in the middle of this 30-day period, he happened to be at a dinner party where he met this woman, and she was introduced to him as the director of an orphanage in Uganda. And he thought, wow, that's really weird coincidence. And he starts talking to her and asking her questions. Yeah, I've never been to Uganda. What's it like over there? And what kind of work do you do? And what kind of needs do you have? And you know, finally she said, you're really interested in this, aren't you? Why don't you, you know, I imagine you have some means. Why don't you fly over and, and visit us? We'll be glad to take you on a tour and show you all around. So he did that. Got on a plane, flew to Uganda. This woman met him at the airport, took him to the orphanage, showed him around. One of the things he discovered was the needs in that in that orphanage and in that village were dire, and they could have easily been addressed by Americans. I mean, what, the things that we throw away would have been a blessing to them. And Bob had some contacts in the pharmaceutical industry, so when he got home, he made some phone calls to several of the CEOs he knew. He said, listen, you guys throw away stuff that would save lives over there. Why don't you consider donating some medical supplies and medication to this orphanage? And within just a few days, within just a few weeks, that orphanage had received over a million dollars worth of medication and supplies, and it really changed things in that village. So they brought him back, and they said, we really want to honor you, Bob. Thank you for doing this for us. And they threw a big party, flew him back to Uganda. The president of the nation actually came to the party. He wanted to see this American who got things done. And he said, do you want to take a tour of the city, the capital city, with me? Bob said, yeah. So they got in the presidential limo, and they're driving around the capital city. And as they're driving along, Bob looks out the window, and he sees what looks like a huge cattle pen. But inside the pen, there's not livestock. There's people. And he says, what's that over there? And the president said, well, that's, those are my political enemies. They opposed me when I ran for election, and they, they get in the way of my power. And so I keep them in there so they, so they can't cause me any trouble. And Bob said, well, that's not right. You ought to let those people go. And he flew home, and a few weeks later, he gets a phone call from the State Department in Washington. And they say, um, sir, did you recently take a trip to Uganda? He said, yes, I did. Well, did you happen to meet the president of Uganda while you were there? Yeah, actually, I did. And they said, well, sir, let me tell you what this is about. The president of Uganda recently released some 
uh, political prisoners. And we've been working for years to try to get these prisoners released, and nothing has worked. And, and he released them. He didn't give any explanation. We, we have some intelligence that tells us that he'd recently met with you. We were wondering if you said anything to him that might have inspired him to do this. And Bob said, yeah, I, I said, that's wrong, and you should let them go. And Bob did not collect $500. He was convinced after that. And I'm not saying that if you pray tomorrow, Lord, show me what you want me to do, that you're going to change an entire country, but you might. I'm saying, I'm saying that if you and I will offer ourselves to the Lord and just say, Lord, I'm, I'm not here to try to convince you to do what I want. I want your kingdom to come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I want to find what you've got me here to do, whether it's invite this person to church, whether it's pray with this person over here, whether it's uh, try, join this ministry out in the community or meet this need that I see or, or confront this guy who's, who's headed down the wrong path or, or encourage this person who's at the end of their rope. Lord, show me. Show me what you want me to do. And if you pray that way, if you pray that way this week and nothing happens, Christian Nance will give you $500. <laughs> Not really, but let's see what God does. See, Jesus was the only one on Palm Sunday who knew what was going to happen. So in the next few days, when he was arrested... And the religious leaders stood in his face and, and spat on him and called him all manner of names and mocked him and, and rendered judgment on him and considered him guilty of blasphemy and high treason and then turned him over to the Romans where the Romans did what they do best. They know how to put people to death and they, they nailed him through the hands and feet and hung him from a cross and six hours later he was dead. And to the religious leaders it was like, yeah, that worked out perfectly. We arrested him over, under cover of darkness. There was no riot. We got rid of him. We should be good for a while. And to the Romans, it's like, yeah, yeah, somebody calls themselves a king, we take them down. That's what we do. And to the disciples, it was like, I was afraid this might happen. Put all my hope in this one person, and now he's gone. And only Jesus knew. Only Jesus knew what was really happening. Colossians 3, Colossians 2, 13 through 15. I want to just read this to you and then we're done. It tells what was really happening at that cross. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Remember that phrase, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Remember that too. Two things in that. When it talks about nailed to the cross, Jesus was nailed to the cross, but he's not there anymore. They took him down. They put him in a, in a tomb. Three days later, he rose again. He lives forever. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's in his resurrected body, just like we will be someday. He's not on the cross anymore but your sins still are. Every sin you've ever committed, every sin you ever will commit, everything that has ever stood between you and God or ever could stand between you and God is nailed to the cross that killed Jesus Christ. And that means nothing, nothing, nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. And if we weren't a bunch of white Baptists, we'd all stand up and cheer about that. And then it says that he took the powers and authorities and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing. Does that sound like anything we talked about earlier? 
This is the Roman triumph. This is Jesus' version. And the powers and authorities he's talking about are not earthly rulers. They're the, they're the powers behind the scenes. They're the, the unseen forces of wickedness in this world. And what it's saying here is that those, those forces are still out there and they still annoy us, but they can't touch us because Jesus defanged them. Jesus defeated them at the cross. And now his life in this world is basically a, a triumphal march walking through this world, picking up more and more people on his side as the enemies, the powers of darkness, trail behind, powerless to stop him. He is the conquering hero. And you and me, when we follow in his footsteps, we experience victory. Doesn't mean our lives are perfect, doesn't mean our lives are easy, but it does mean our lives are victorious and meaningful and exactly what they were created to be. And that's why when we wake up in the morning and we say, Lord, show me what you want me to do, we're unleashing the power of God in our lives. So just see what happens.